from the Diocese of Springfield in Illinois, this is Dive Deep, where we dive deep into our Catholic faith. I am Andrew Hansen. Hope you're doing well. November 2nd, All Souls Day. We have a very special guest to, to talk about that. He has a very interesting, actually an extraordinary story about something that happened to him at a cemetery that we can't wait to tell you about. His name is Father James Krasinski. He's a priest of the Diocese of La Crosse in Wisconsin. And he's also an amateur astronomer. Father James, thanks for coming on Dive Deep. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me on your show. And hello to the good people of the Diocese of Springfield. I have a, a deep affection for your diocese. A lot of my brother seminarians, when I was back at Mundelein, ended up being priest for Springfield, and I've been to the diocese a couple times. It's been a while, but uh, I've always felt a connection with Springfield, so I'm, I'm very humbled and honored to be with all of you today. Well, we appreciate those kind words, and as I said in the intro, you had something happen to you that was uh, extraordinary, something that you remember to this day. It happened to you a long time ago, an experience that happened at a cemetery. I'm going to leave it at that because we're going to build to that, yeah. uh, that I want people to really... Stay with us here, because what happened to you uh, is is incredible, and it's a re- deep reminder of what we believe as Catholics. So, uh, but when we talk about cemeteries, uh, you have always had a deep affection for cemeteries, in a sense, ever since you, ever since you grew up. Is that be accurately putting? That would be accurately putting. You know, put you know, for me growing up. And by the way, I just want to to say hello to my good friend uh, Monsignor Heffler. Thank you for <laughs> putting me indirectly on the show, Monsignor Heffler. Monsignor Heffler, yeah, he's our he's our vicar general. He's uh, been at parishes in Blessed Sacrament in Springfield. He's been in Effingham. So yeah, a lot of people know him. But yeah, you can blame Father. Uh, just, just, just as the the backstory to why I'm on here is, you know, he uh, shared this with you, and I was very uh, humbled that uh, he still remembers it. I mean, so I was like was glad to. It was a fun jaunt down. Uh, memory lane from my childhood when you mentioned that but yeah ever since i was a kid uh cemeteries were a part of my spirituality that might sound a little odd for people but growing up my parents were very active at our parish it was uh then it was called saint patrick of lanark um it doesn't exist anymore it was combined with three other parishes it was a small rural parish about 100 130 families and my mom helped decorate the church. My dad mowed the lawn. So for me, there were literally days in my childhood, especially in the summer, where we would spend just as much time out at the church as we would um, at home. And so really, um, it might be cliche to say as a priest that the church was a second home to me, but really growing up it was. Um, my friends and I would play out at the church all the time. We had a little softball team <laughs> that we, um, Father Swing, our pastor at that time, had some softball gear. But when it came to prayer time, obviously I would pray in the church, but every once in a while I would feel a need to get outside. And ever since I was a kid, I just got into the habit of praying in the cemetery. One of the main reasons I would pray in our cemetery is my grandfather on my mother's side, um, Anthony Riley uh, was buried there. And I've always had this odd connection with him. He died almost to the hour a week before I was born. Mm. And um, I never met him, obviously. But going off into other directions that would get us sidetracked, I've always felt this unique 
communion of saints connection with my grandfather, because every time I would hear stories about him, there just seemed to be a uniqueness there, that he was in an odd way always there, even though he had passed away. And one day it just kind of dawned on me as I was at my grandfather's tomb, um, or my, at my grandfather's gravestone, that, you know, he's not the only person buried out here. <laughs> you know, that maybe maybe some other people might, you know, benefit from some prayers too. So when I was, and gosh, this goes back, I don't know, five, six, seven years old, I think, uh, when I started this, I would literally just walk to every headstone and just say a quick little prayer. And now, granted, it was a small parish of 130 families, so it was a small cemetery. Uh, now, as a priest, the cemeteries that have been connected with parishes I've served are so big, there's no possible way mm. I could you know, pull something like that off. But for our parish, it would take me two to three hours, and I would just walk through and say a quick little prayer for every uh, for everybody that was there. As uh, another friend of mine from seminary said when I shared this story with him, he said, oh, that's kind of like pumping the meter downtown. You, know, <laughs> you see a car that's uh, where the, the time just ran out on their, uh, on their parking meter. And I'm like, well, yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> but um, one day, I I was always, as a kid fascinated with the oldest headstones. Um, there were some really old headstones in this one section. Some of them, the years and the names had been worn off, so you couldn't see how old they were. But I I don't know why I always had this connection. And one day, there was this one headstone that I was um, praying, saying a prayer for. And there was this moment that jarred me of just having this deep inner sense of the person saying to me, thank you. Nobody's prayed for me for over 200 years. It's incredible. It just, it just jolted me. And I remember you and I spoke about this before you said you even, you turned around in that moment because it, 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 it it felt like it was almost, you mentioned inner voice, but it did feel, it felt like it was almost an external voice too. Like, wait, is somebody here with me? And that's, you know, I, when you asked me that, you know, the first time, did you audibly hear a voice? You know, I was really young back then, and years later, I, I can't recall every detail perfectly, but it was powerful enough in whatever way it spoke to me that I wanted to look around to see if someone was there. It was, there was a, a clear sense that, you know, a presence, um, an awareness, and also a, something that was clearly said to me. And the peace that I felt in that moment of gratitude was just overwhelming. Um, and the one thing, Father yeah. James, that I, that I also find striking about that sto- this story, and it's just a short story. I mean, you know, this you heard, you, you felt you heard a voice of someone say thank you. A couple things: a, thank you, and two, someone someone who has prayed for me for two hundred years. It, it, a specific time reference, which really shows me that this person through God obviously allowing it, was was able to speak to you in whatever way. And because they gave you a specific time of 200 years. When you, when yeah. you, when you, you said you felt peace, were you also feeling almost sorrow in a sense? Like, wow, you know, you've been, no one's thought of you for 200 years or I'm sure you had a mix of emotions. And I know you were, you were a young boy, so maybe you don't remember at all, as you said, but uh, anything like that? You know, for me, it was 
and now you're really asking me to dig back <laughs> to my child of brain. You know, I just as I'm thinking about it, as you ask that question, the initial moments, the initial feeling was shock. You know, um, a deep sense of peace set in, and you know, it, I I didn't visibly see the person's face, obviously, but there was almost a sense of a almost a tear-filled gratitude um, and a connection in that moment of, wow, what I'm doing really does matter, mm. you know? And, you know, in terms of, you mentioned, you know, talking about purgatory too, I can honestly say that at that time of my youth, maybe we had talked about purgatory as a family <laughs> or in a parish, but I there would have been no real practical theological knowledge instilled right. in me at that point in my life where any type of idea of a purgation would have even been on my radar screen. But it was just the sense that this person needed my prayers and they thanked me for those prayers. That's absolutely incredible. And, uh, yeah, it's, it was a powerful moment. And, um, you know, it was one of those headstones that, can't make out the date, so I don't know, you know, when they died and name is wore off, but it was in that really old section and um which could possibly I mean two hundred years wouldn't be outside of the realm of reality in terms of how long ago before long ago they had been uh, buried there. Yeah. And ever ever since then I just there was um this deep I always started at that headstone. Every time I went back to the cemetery instead of going to my grandfather's headstone first i'd always go to that one where i had that experience and start there yeah and, now, and, and you mentioned you mentioned monsignor heffler at the top because for me you know to, to even connect some more dots about how you and i connected and now you're on dive deep is because i heard the homily from monsignor heffler relaying this story because as you said you guys knew each other well in the seminary yeah. and so i approached monsignor heffler i said hey I, and and he told me this homily years ago. And that shows you that it stuck with me that I approached Monsignor Heffler. And he's like, oh, this is Father James. Actually, it happened to Father James. That's yeah. how we got connected. And and that's what I really, it's, that's what I really want listeners to realize that the power of this story is extraordinary. A, and just what happened to you and you hearing this voice from of someone thanking you, but two, the, the powerful reminder of this is a slap in the face to, I think all of us that say, hey, Remember the souls in purgatory. We believe as Catholics that people are in purgatory and our prayers can help them get to heaven faster. And, you know, to me, I think it's, you know, when you, when you did your intro for purgatory, you know, one, I think it is something that is so important for us to as Catholics to both either appreciate more or rediscover if we've forgotten it. Um, as a joke since then, um, I've been a high school teacher, and as a joke, I would say to my high school teachers or students that I taught, because I was a chaplain at Regis High School in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, I would say to them, if a kid would question purgatory in class to me, I would say to them, hey, look, I thank God for purgatory every day, because if there wasn't, I might be in deep trouble in the afterlife. <laughs> That's true. You know, that, would kind of, that would kind of get a, you know, a little rise out of them. But, you know, it is the idea of you know, granted, you're not going to find the word purgatory in Scripture, but the idea of a post-death purgation is very scriptural. We find it both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
And when you have a practical experience like I had as a child, you know, it's without even having approached the teaching on purgatory, I just, from that day on, praying in that cemetery and praying for everybody in that cemetery became part of the daily bread of my prayer. And there was this deep sense that I had that I needed to pray for them and that the that my prayers, even in my younger pre-teenager self, was important to everybody that was in the cemetery. Yeah, and and, and so, something really struck when you just said you, you gave that example to high schoolers. And of course, we both kind of chuckle, but it's true. And especially our, our non-Catholic friends, I think. And, and even Catholics, we, we, we sometimes, we don't, we don't understand that actually purgatory is, is merciful. And to your point, if purg- purgatory doesn't exist, then boy, we got, we got a lot of other, you know, troubles, troubles ahead of us. So it, tell our listeners about actually purgatory is really love and mercy to the T from, from Jesus. And, and we should be thankful purgatory exists. Yeah. You know, for me, Ironically, one of the most beautiful images of purgatory I ever came across is from a non-Catholic, C.S. Lewis. And when he described in his writings the idea of purgatory, the idea that after death, that the Lord brings us to our eternal reward, and he says to us, enter, go in. But then we ourselves look at the state of our soul realizing that there is still more purification to be done. And in C.S. Lewis's writings saying that, you know, the purification after death is more of our request of Jesus, of saying, Lord, let me first go and purify myself further before entering in. And then the Lord, okay, fine, I'll let you, you know, go and, you know, and to me that just, there was such a, because um, sometimes when you read the mystics' writings on purgatory, it can get pretty darn scary. <laughs> I just, I uh, when we, I again back to my high school days, I joked with some of my students that, you know, when it came to Halloween, you know, forget a haunted house, we could do a purgatory house and have pretty much the same effect based on some of the writing of the mystics of uh, of purgatory, and um, it. Uh, and yeah, purgatory should, even though it's a mercy and even though it's a grace, should kind of scare the H E double hockey sticks out of us. You know, I mean that there's there's something that is is it's okay to fear hell. <laughs> it's it's a healthy thing to fear eternal punishment and you know, and so I think that, you know, the difference though of having that healthy fear versus being so afraid to, um, you had mentioned that in your last podcast, the theme of the author you had on was looking at things like anxiety and stress. And, you know, if, if suddenly, if that fear leads to an unhealthy scrupulosity where instead of living in the grace of Christ, there's this perpetual, constant, obsessive, almost scrupulosity of, oh my gosh, did I, I just tripped over my shoelaces, isn't that a sin? You know, that can become unhealthy. But to have that healthy awareness of, if I commit a mortal sin, I put my soul in the possibility of not being with the Lord for all eternity in heaven. I need to get the confession. I need to receive that grace. And thank God for purgatory that, 
if there's venial sin that I die in that won't keep me away from the Lord for all eternity, but I still have a sense of a need for purification after death, combining that theology, the scriptural reality we find in Corinthians, I believe it's 3.15, First Corinthians 3.15 of the post-death purification, um, and then combining that with C.S. Lewis's reflection of that this idea of it's almost purgation after death is something that we request from the Lord to purify us so we can fully enjoy for all eternity the reward that is given to us. To me, I just find that there is so much hope in that image. Yeah, let's be let's be scared of hell. You know, that's 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 a good thing to be afraid of. Yeah. There's a lot of things in our world that let's be afraid of committing mortal sin. Let's let's be afraid of you know, hurting our relationship with God, and let's be afraid of hurting our relationship with our neighbor That when, when we're called to love in a Christ-like manner. Those are good things to be scared of, um, just as long as it doesn't fall into an unhealthy scrupulosity. Gotcha. Now, I, I know, um, I think so many Catholics fall into this trap of your loved one who, by all extensive purposes, lived a holy life, you know, the funeral mass happens. Um, that's obviously incredibly important because we're praying for that person's soul. They're buried. And, you know, it, it, we kind of just canonize them at that mass. You know, Susie, Billy, you know, is enjoying eternal life right now. He gets, you know, and, and we, you know, we, we, we almost kind of forget about them after that because, well, we don't need to pray for them because they're in heaven, of course. And I know for you priests, finding that line between, well, we don't want to just condemn your uh, your loved one to purgatory right now, but we also need to remind our, remind the faithful that, no, we do believe in purgatory, and this mass, this funeral mass is really just the beginning of what your prayer should should be for your loved one. Talk about that balance, and then, and then talk about it, you know, obviously as, as Catholics, after the funeral mass is over, we need to continue to pray. Yeah, you know, and just to pull something out that you said that I think is a good starting point, um, you had mentioned that, you know, oh, this person is being condemned to purgatory. I would prefer to think of it, your loved ones being rewarded with their purgatory, because purgatory is still a part of heaven. Um, as I would share with my students at Regis, the escalator only goes up with purgatory. <laughs> it's not like a, it's not like a holding tank where you can go either up or down. That's a, that's a beautiful um, image right there, because yeah, I use the word condemn because I think most Catholics view it as. Not you know, or, or not I should say most, but some Catholics view it as you're you're condemning my loved one. They, they they're in heaven right you know, now. How dare you? And I th- and I think that and even though this might be to some of your listeners to be an extreme, the people who really get the idea of purgatory in a healthy way as a reward are the families that I can think of where a loved one has taken their own life, mm. and when there's the question that's put to me as a pastor, Father, is my loved one in in hell because of the decisions that they've made? And, you know, just to share with them that, you know, the wonderful thing about being human is that I'm not the one that decides whether or not their loved one is in heaven and hell. Um, you know, they obviously did something that is seen 
as something that is um, taking their own life, it's sinful. At the same time, though, too, how beautiful it is that even before they took their life, could have there been a moment of awareness where Christ's mercy still could have been given to them, and that purgation could be a part of their reality now after their death, realizing that we don't have to have the pressure of of knowing definitively the large answer of condemnation. Um, but we can place them in the hands of God's mercy, pray for them as we've been talking for that, and and having the hope that in those moments the Lord extended great mercy to them, and that purgation can be a way that can lead to a, a joyful reunion um, versus an absolutism of, well, it's either this or this. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's either heaven or hell. Um, and some people might claim that that's wishy-washy. I don't think it's wishy-washy at all, because whether it's psychological struggles, um, dealing with with personal demons that go way beyond what the people who love the person who takes their own life um, uh, are even aware of that they're going through. There is reason to hope, and there is good reason to hope that somehow, someway, the Lord's mercy is with them. And we don't have to rush to the presumption of eternal damnation for those who have taken their lives. Um, At the same time, though, too, people who have lost people through suicide, there's also that sense, too, that they know that, well, just to you know, say that they're in heaven and act like nothing's wrong or nothing was wrong and there were no struggles also seems to those who've lost loved ones too to be inappropriate as well. Um, they don't want you to over-idealize their loved one. Um, you know, they don't want you to try to act like there wasn't anything wrong because there was. And so therefore, in terms of seeing purgatory as profound theology of mercy is something that I think that we as Catholics can really present that still is absolutely doctrinally faithful to our understanding of the four last things, and that is consistent with that, but also to show that, um, you know, there there may be a... a um, an abundance of mercy that we sometimes don't give God credit for, um, that uh, the purgatory can shed some healthy light on, again, still in a way that is um, striving to, as I said before, it's good to be afraid of hell. <laughs> we should be afraid of that reality. But also to say, too, that there are, you know, that there is a, there is an ability for the Lord to show mercy when at times mercy can be difficult to find. Now, I want to talk about the, the funeral mass and the importance of that, because unfortunately we see so many young people who are becoming nuns, N-O-N-E-S, uh, falling away from the faith, and their parent passes away, and, and their parent, who is a faithful Catholic, wants and desires a funeral mass, and yep. the, the child then doesn't follow through. And yep. what's your advice for people right now to make sure that, hey, when I die, 
I want a funeral mass and this is why. <laughs> you know, for me, I would say not only for your parishioners, but if there are priests um, listening, your bishop, if your bishop is listening, what I do, and it's a practice that I picked up from a, uh, another parish, um, from another pastor uh, that I inherited through assignment, we do as a parish, um, we haven't been able to do it right now because of COVID-19, but we'll do an end-of-life planning night um, for parishioners. And it is by far one of the most well-attended programs that we have in terms of people wanting to come together. And basically what we do is you have somebody from the funeral home, myself, and we also have a financial person there too, just to, on all those three areas, just because I see the same problem that you're alluding to, that there are people who are being called home by the Lord that are our daily mass people that I know would want a full funeral liturgy, but because of family tensions, they're choosing not. Um, put it down in a will. Put it down. Treat it with the same type of seriousness you would your financials in terms of your final will and testament. Make arrangements with your home parish that this is what I want. Make arrangements with the funeral home while you're alive, while you're um, here with us, so that when death comes, all of that's already decided. Um, and I, it, um, people have a right to the funeral liturgy. People have a need for the funeral liturgy. And to protect, to make sure that that need is given, I find organizing those uh, parish nights where you can really, um, you know, be able to talk with professionals and not only in terms of talk with their pastor, but talk with a funeral home, to talk with a financial advisor who can give them some advice on putting together a will and how do you put this all in a cohesive way and communicate it to the family so everybody knows before death, this is what you want. Um, and, and, it really, and it really shows, best route. yeah, and it really shows your story. I mean, and to bring it back to your story, the story of you hearing a voice at a cemetery, and I've read countless of other stories of, I remember one of, of, of a new priest coming into a rectory and they, they hear noises in the attic and they go on up there and, and they see a, a list of masses that had gone unoffered because, the, you know, the previous priest passed away. Then they offered the masses for, for all those souls and boom, before you know it, there was no, you know, noises coming from the attic anymore. It's just, it, it's a powerful story what happened to you and you hear those other stories is just a, a, a tangible reminder if we use that word to continue to pray for the souls in purgatory. And and the one thing I've, al- I've always said is the, the Catholic Church shines in so many ways, as we know. For me personally, I think of funeral mass and the way, you know, we, we bury the dead and we do it in such a respectful and prayerful way. That's one of the, the shiniest of the shiniest moments, if you use that phrase, for me, that the church does so well. The healing, the prayers, the, the community, and you know, I just, I want people to be, to, to remind it to be a part of that and to also continue the prayers for the faithful departed. Yeah. It's interesting you bring that up because at the risk of sounding like I might be a bad priest and I, I trust you, I'm not. I, uh, when I heard rumors that, that, uh, they're looking at 
retranslating the funeral rites book, my, my initial response was, oh no, those are some of my favorite prayers. I'm like, don't, don't mess up the language. You know, just because you're right, the funeral rites book speaks so powerfully. And it's, it's, it's um, in my opinion, some of the best prayer we have is our funeral rites. Um, and uh, um, the healing that can come um, for a family. I, my experience as a priest when the funeral rites are celebrated is that it doesn't create more division with the family. Um, it can be a very healing moment for the family. Because I think that part of it is is that um, family members have certain presumptions coming into a funeral liturgy in terms of um, fill in the blank. You know, it, mm-hmm. it, it's kind of the culture of the day. But when they actually then overcome that fear and walk through the funeral liturgy, uh, liturgies in whole from the vigil through the visitation, through the funeral liturgy itself to the committal, the healing that can come. And I've had it before where, you know, I, to me, when I think about people who have come back to the church through things I've done in my priesthood, you know, kind of for today, we're recording this. The first reading today was Paul's writings about this beautiful catechesis we've been hearing in the daily mass readings of what does it mean to think with the the mind of Christ and today is that, you know, we're simply co-workers of Christ and we don't, this isn't, we're not the ones doing this stuff, but we're co-working with Christ. I've never seen somebody come back to church because of some type of eloquent argument that I've constructed. I have seen people come back to church after a funeral liturgy. I have seen people come back to church after I've gotten a call at two in the morning and I've gone to a hospital or a nursing home to anoint their loved one and everybody was there and because I was there and I just celebrated the sacrament with real minimal conversation with the family, there was something about the power of that moment that brought them home. And so that the immediate effect of a funeral liturgy is on the deceased. They need those prayers. Um, Again, from that standpoint of their need for afterlife purgation, but that part of that purgation can also be an awakeness, an awakening and awareness of those present of, I need to get my act together too, to have that healthy sense of, you know, what are, where am I with the Lord right now? You know, is if I were to die today, what would be the state of my soul, that healthy fear of hell? And that can actually bring about a great change of heart. Father James Krasinski, he is a priest of the Diocese of La Crosse, Wisconsin. Father James, thank you for coming on. Thank you for telling uh, your, your incredible story and a reminder for all of us to continue to pray for the dead. Thank you for having me on and my prayers for you and the good people of Springfield. Excellent. That is Father James Krasinski. This has been Dive Deep. If you would like more podcasts, head on over to dio.org slash podcast. Until then, we will see you next time here on Dive Deep.